You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast. Today's episode is titled, The Workplace and the Will of God. What does God think of the workplace? A businessman asked his pastor this question, and the reply was two words, not much. This perspective is all too common. Many believe that work is little more than a necessary evil, something we have to do to make money. To these people, the workplace is, at best, a place to evangelize, and of course, to practice ethics. But what does Scripture say? Does God care about the workplace? If so, what is His will for the workplace? Dr. Chester brings us a message titled, The Workplace and the Will of God. Glad to be with all of you. Well, let's talk about the workplace and the will of God. And to kind of get us started here, I thought I'd tell you a little story. Uh, This is a story about a guy that wanted to join a church. Well, as a Texas man went to this Catholic church and asked, asked to join, the priest said, Okay, but you have to pass a small Bible test first. The question is, where was Jesus born? The man thought for a minute and said, Longview. The priest said, Sorry, you can't join our church. Now, Longview is in East Texas, in case you didn't know that. Okay. Well, he's not discouraged, so he tries another church. So he went down the road to the Methodist church and said, uh, asked the preacher if he could join. The preacher says, we'd love to have you, but you have to pass the Bible test first. What was, where was Jesus born? The man said quickly, Tyler. The preacher said, no way can you join our church. Well, he still doesn't give up. So he goes down to the Baptist church and he asked if he could join. The preacher said, well, that's great. We're, we're welcoming you. We're glad you're here. The man said, don't I have to pass a Bible test first? The preacher said, no. The man said, well, then can I ask you a question? Where was Jesus born? The preacher said, Palestine. The man mumbled to himself, I knew it was somewhere in East Texas. (laughs) Palestine is in East Texas, in case you didn't know. (laughs) Well, uh, may I welcome you to Texas. We're glad you're here. Glad you're having a great conference. Pray that you're hearing some rich things from the Holy Spirit through uh, all the events that you're attending, all the conversations you're having. We're going to talk a little bit about the workplace and the will of God today. My first question is, does God have a will about the workplace? Corollary to that is, does, does he care about the workplace other than as a place for evangelism and ethics? What I see out there in, in what's going on in Christianity today, particularly relative to what we call the marketplace movement, is the thinking that, The workplace is just a place for evangelism and, oh yeah, by the way, be ethical. But that's pretty much the the limit of the value you find in the workplace. That's very common thinking. So most people spend a majority of their time working at least 40, 50, 60 hours a week, but few seem to have mastered a biblical perspective of work. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever had biblical training on work? Biblically-based training on work. A biblical worldview of work. In any context. Okay, well, you've had some because you've been around Dennis Peacock and others. There are a few people doing it, by the way. But I find in my travels that very few people have that training. It's generally not a topic of discussion in most local churches that i found or in just informal settings. Even in Christian colleges. A few years ago, I was having um, lunch with the dean of a Christian college, and I just written my book. My book is a, a biblical model for building organizations. So I'm talking to this dean of the business school about my book and, and all that went into it and how I, how I got to writing it, etc. 
And in the course of the conversation, the dean says, well, I want you to know that we really do embrace the biblical worldview here in our school. I said, well, that's great. Uh, tell me about it. She says, well, we have all the typical business courses. You know, we've got marketing and finance and management, you know, sales, training, those kinds of things. And I said, okay, well, how is it that you present this from a biblical worldview? And, and the dean said, oh, we have a devotional at the beginning of the, of the class. And I said, you have a devotional at the beginning of the class that makes it biblical? Well, yeah. I said, what about the textbooks? Oh, we use all the, the our normal textbooks. So I said, you use secular textbooks and you have a devotional, and that's your definition of a biblical worldview of training. So you see, that's the kind of thinking that we're running into, or I'm running into consistently as I travel around and meet with people, because we, we do not value the workplace enough to ask the question, what does the Bible have to say about work? Now, you know that Jesus was a carpenter. Do you all know that? In fact, Scripture says that that the people knew he was a carpenter. Now, if he was true to the tradition of the Jews as we understand them, most likely he became a carpenter's apprentice at age 12. And most likely he did that for 18 years until age 30, where he moved into his, his next phase of ministry as an itinerant preacher. So for 18 years he was in the carpenter's shop every day. Does it surprise you to know that of his 39 parables, over half of them have to do with economics, money, and business? Does that surprise you? Where do you think he might have gotten that information? Well, he got it at the carpenter's bench, in the carpenter shop, working with his father who was a carpenter, learning the business, learning how to transact business. That's where he learned a lot of these truths. And when he tells his parables, he's using these principles that he learned, apprenticing and working with his father, and he's drawing spiritual lessons from these principles. So the Bible has a lot to say about the workplace and a biblical worldview of work if we have the ears to hear it and if we have the eyes to see it. Furthermore, most parents don't seem to know how to biblically prepare their children for the workplace. I run in this all the time. Most parents that I run into, and I know there are exceptions, hopefully some of you are exceptional, most parents do not have a sense of recognizing the destiny of God in their children, equipping them and calling them into their destiny. Most parents, they have this sense of, well, I need to put a safety net under my child and kind of let them do whatever it is they're going to do, and if they fall into the net, I can catch them. And then when they grow up, they can figure out what they want to be and go do what they want to do. That's pretty much the common view of parenting. And sadly, may I say to you, that is not a biblical view of parenting. But again, we're not getting a lot of teaching on that. Basically, the teaching that I run into about parenting has to do with training people in biblical values, which are important. It's just that's not the whole story. You've got to go beyond that. And we want to talk a little bit about how to go beyond that today. So this session will explore what the Bible has to say about finding and fulfilling the will of God in the workplace. Now, that obviously assumes that God has a will for the workplace. So the first thing I think we need to tackle is a problem that we run into, a common error. Now, this error is called dualism. Some of you may have heard of dualism. And let me just pose a question to help set up the discussion. Does God value work? Or is the workplace just a necessary evil? 
there are many people that think that God has places no value in work because God is only concerned with spiritual reality. And with that statement, they have immediately said they don't believe work is spiritual reality. Now you stop and think about that a second. Where did this whole physical universe come from? We all know where it came from, don't we? And the answer is not the Big Bang. Okay? The answer is God. God created everything. So physical, the physical reality that we are in today came from a spirit being, which means spiritual reality is the fundamental reality out of which the physical reality flows, which means that everything in physical reality ultimately has a spiritual root. Now, see, that's just kind of a, a what? I mean, that doesn't fit our paradigm. We think work is like it's, it kind of exists separate from God, and it, you know, it's where we go and do what we have to do to make money so we can go run back to wherever we think the kingdom of God is. Okay? We don't view God as having any care or concern about the workplace. A few years ago, I was invited to speak at a Christian college, and um, one of the faculty members introduced me, and in his introduction, he said something I had to ponder for a little bit. He said, here at this institution, uh, we value integrating our faith with work. And so I, my wheels start turning, integrating faith and work. What does he mean by that? And so the more I thought about that, the more I realized what he meant was this, or I believe what he meant was this. You know, we, we've got this workplace thing going that we all work in and we go to and we make money and do our thing there. But we realize, you know, we really need to bring God into this place. Even though he really doesn't need to be here or shouldn't be here, we want to be magnanimous toward God. So we're going to invite him into a, a workplace world where he doesn't belong, but we're going to be gracious and kind to God and bring him in. Isn't that, aren't we good people? See, and that's the mentality. We have no sense that, that our work stems and comes from God. Whatever it is you have a gift to do, all of these things require skills. Who gave you the skill to do these things? God. See, we tend to think that we kind of develop these things on our own. We, we study and we practice and we learn and all that. And we don't realize all of that skill and ability you have. Your mental faculties, your skill with your hands, your ability to see... And, and shape things, make good decisions, all of those come from God. I was sharing at a church a few years ago and was sharing on this point, and I, I, in that particular setting, I just used an example of a CPA. It happened to be near tax time. And I said, there's a bunch of CPAs in here doing taxes. I guarantee you not one of these CPAs could do what they're doing today if God didn't reveal to them how to do accounting work. You get what you know from God through revelation. He revealed it to you. It did not come from you. It came from him. Well, this guy walks up to me afterwards, and he's white. I mean, he's really white. He was Anglo-white, and he was really white now, because he had been convicted by the spirit of the truth of that reality. He said, I had never thought of that. I've been a Christian for 25 years. I have never realized that God gave me these gifts I have, and my ability to earn an income comes from him. My clients come from him. My opportunities, my success, you know, everything I do comes from him. 
And so he began to really get a picture of the reality that God is the core, the, dri the moving driver of the workplace. Now, when the Greeks began to develop their philosophical theories in about three and four, two or three hundred A.D., they began to develop a theory that spiritual reality and physical reality are separate, and spiritual reality was good, and physical reality, material reality, was evil. That was the genesis of what we know as dualism. And that, that particular heresy has propagated now over 2,000 years, and it is still here. And it is here big time. It is in our Christian communities today, we still think very dualistically. We think spiritual reality is the Lord's work, and we think physical reality is not the Lord's work. It's ubiquitous. This dualistic thinking is everywhere in our culture. And so we need, to, we need to stop and think about, you know, what we understand to be true and what we're projecting in our saying. So you see this little picture of this chasm here where you have this big canyon, you have two sides. Well, that's kind of a picture here. You've got spiritual reality and physical reality, and the natural thinking that we all default to is they don't connect. So most believe that God cares only about spiritual matters. He doesn't care about your work. That's a continent. You hear me? This is, this is what dualism teaches. Now, dualism is a bifurcation of material and spiritual reality that minimizes the value of physical reality. That's what dualism does. Now, in the extreme version of it, uh, the Gnostics believe that actually material reality was evil. So this little wireless mouse that I have in my hand, this, this would be evil. Okay? <laughs> This Kindle, which has happened to have a copy of the Bible in it, would be evil, okay? Because it's material. Now that's the extreme version. Now the version of, of dualism today is not that extreme. It's more of a just. It's more of a, a situation where if you want to do something that counts in the kingdom of God, you're going to be a pastor, or you're going to be a Bible teacher, or you're going to be a missionary, or you're going to be an evangelist. You're going to go on a mission trip. See, and that's how we think. And the way we practice this. It sometimes is very innocently. So just to share with you a quick story of something that happened in my church a couple of years ago. And this is one of those things that made me sit up and think, what, 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 what do we just do here? So <clears throat> we're, we're in a leadership meeting, and uh, there is an engineer in our church that's going to go on a mission trip. So somebody says, hey, we need to pray over so-and-so. He's going to go on a mission trip. Now, doesn't that sound like a good idea? Yeah. I mean, that's a good, we do that, don't we? Because we all gather around, lay hands on him, we pray over him, we send him out, you know, bless him and all that. So he goes on his mission trip and he comes back. First, back, first Sunday he's back from his mission trip. We all pat him on the back, how'd it go, da 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 you know, talk to him. And then the next day, the next Monday, he goes back to being an engineer. We did not pray for him that Sunday he came back and sent him out to be an engineer. So what did we say through our inaction? What did we tell him? That's right. Non-verbally, that's what we told him. If you will go on a mission trip, you're important, and we will pray for you. But if you're just going to go be an engineer, that's not important. We're not going to pray for you. I see. Now that's that was very innocent. We weren't trying to be malicious. We weren't trying to be dualist, but we were dualist because that was the default of what's in us. So dualism is in, it's insidious. It infects all of us, and we have to fight it. We have to give each other permission to say, anything. anytime you see me doing something dualistic, would you call me on it? 
Because God created everything. And he declared it all good. In fact, in the last of Genesis chapter 1, he said it is very good. Now let's talk about that word good for a second. That word good to us is kind of a slang term. We say something's good, that means we kind of like it, right? Doesn't that what it means? Oh, that was good. Hey, we like that. But you know what good meant to Jesus? You remember the story of the rich young ruler? Rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Good master, what thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember what Jesus said? Don't call me good. He said, why? He asked the question, why do you call me good? Because there's only one good, and that's God. He was saying, do you understand what you're saying? Do you get it that you will recognize that I am God? Do you get that? You see, Jesus, to him, to him, good was not a slang term. It was an attribute of God. Good was an attribute of God. So I, my thesis is that's the way those scriptures uses the word good, is it speaks of the character and nature of God. So to say something is good, which it, it's repeatedly said in Genesis 1, after each day, you know, God looked on him and said, this is good. And the last day he says, it is very good. What he's saying is it lines up with me. It reflects me. This creation is all about me. So you can see God values his physical creation. That's very important to get. You see, if God doesn't value his physical creation, he's not going to value our assignment to work in it. And all of you, I assume, know why we are created. I grew up Baptist. I've been in several streams in my life. My first stream of Christianity was Baptist. And I was saved as an 11-year-old boy in the Baptist church. Heard the gospel. You know, it's interesting. Some people grow up in various streams and never hear the gospel. But I did hear the gospel. I understood that salvation was by grace, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ. And I didn't have anything to do with it. I just received a free gift from God. I understood that. So that was a tremendous gift that I got from the, from the Baptist church. But what I didn't get from the Baptist church was an answer to the question, why did God create man? What, what's the point? You see, as I looked at what we did, and you, know, you could see what people believe by what they do. What, what I did as a Baptist basically is you, know, you go to church on Sunday, you go to visitation on Monday night, you go back to church on Wednesday, and then on Sunday you start all over again. It's all about going back to the church and bringing your tithes and offerings and attending the various events they have there and trying to go out and bring other people into the Baptist church. It's all about becoming a Baptist. In fact, I remember looking at their literature. Uh, they had a, kind of a, a rack of literature there which with various tracts and things. Everything was about becoming a Baptist. That's what it was. So, you know, my mentality was it's all about getting people saved. And so, you know, I, as I got older, I said, well, if that's true, then, then what's the best way, you know, for us to look at this? And I realized, well, I need to look at this as populating heaven. That's really what, what the game is. We're supposed to populate heaven. So if we're supposed to populate heaven, what's the best way to populate heaven? Well, we just need to get people saved, and before they have a chance to backslide, we need to, we need to handle it. So here's what we do. We get Billy Graham, who's the greatest crusader of all. Get him, and by the way, you know his stats, don't you? Y'all familiar with that? that uh, you know, he had millions of people make professions, but out of these millions of people, fewer than 5% ever move forward with Christ. 
ever grow in Christ, ever connect and really become disciples. So the stats are very low. So anyway, what we do is we get these crusades going, we generate all this emotion, get people to come forward, you know, professing faith in Christ, and pull them over to a side room and have a, have a little assembly line set up here, and we have them come and, and basically answer a few questions, just like the first slide. Okay, you know, you really believe that Jesus died for your sins. You really believe that you can't do anything to earn any favor with God. You really believe your faith is in Christ alone. And once they say yes, we say, fine, shoot them. Bam, another one coming up. So we populate heaven. And that was kind of what I thought Christianity was. And I, I'm not blaming anybody in my background. This is just what I, as a young boy, interpreted was I looked at what was being done in that stream of thinking. And nobody pointed me to Genesis chapter 1 where the question is answered, why are we here? Genesis 1 tells us, we all know the text, that God made us in his image, in his likeness, so we could rule this physical creation that he declared to be very good. So our job to rule it is largely done today in the workplace for most of us. Now, if you happen to be a homemaker, you rule in the home. If you happen to be called a vocational ministry, that's where you rule. Wherever it is that you're assigned, that's where you rule. And so when you begin to get a vision to bring the rule and reign of God into wherever I'm assigned, and that God values it because he values his physical creation, suddenly it gives me a whole, totally different picture of work. Work is not a means to an end, i.e. to make money. It's not just a place to pass out tracts, okay? not just a place to be ethical. It's a place to actually glorify God, to obey the mandate of Genesis 1, 26-28, to rule God's creation. In fact, I wish we had time to go through this one, but in Genesis 2, 5, the very first word that's used for work in the Bible is to till the ground. It's the word abad. That same word, abad, is translated in the Psalms as service and worship. Now just let that roll around a while. Whoa! The word for till the ground is also translated to serve and to worship. And you're saying, oh, wait a minute, I thought work was just about money. That's not the picture of Scripture. Scripture tells us work is a divinely ordained activity by which we serve God and we worship Him and we fulfill the creation mandate. We do what we've been put here to do. Now those are the mind blowers that just typically just put people on tilt. Like, whoa, nobody's ever said this to me before. Well, it's because by and large the paradigms of Christianity over the last few hundred years particularly over the last two or three hundred years, have not seen value in work. Now, if you go back prior, you know, four or five hundred years, you know, Luther, um, Calvin, those guys, they looked at work differently. They looked at work much more biblically than we do today. So there's been, there's been times in church history where there's been more understanding of this than others. Right now, we're at a time where there's not much understanding of it. And so part of the challenge is, can we get back to a biblical worldview of work? Now, just I want to make one other point here before we move on. The Gnostics believe that physical reality was evil. And here's a very simple way to counter that. There are people that still believe that, by the way, today. Jesus was fully human, yet without sin. Therefore, material reality is not sinful. 
If material reality is sinful, then Jesus was sinful. But yet, here's what Scripture says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who have, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was sinless. He was a physical human being. He had a human nature. So this, this is an illustration of why Gnosticism is not true, at least in that extreme form. Okay, well, let's go on and do a little few definitions. We're going to talk about the will of God. Oh, that was the introduction. <laughs> I hate it when it takes me 30 minutes to do the introduction, but we'll try to speed it up here. Look at the dictionary definition of will. Will is the power of making a reasoned choice or decision. It's also another definition. It's the legal statement of a person's wishes concerning the disposal of his or her property after death. Okay, so that's just a couple of definitions, and we would all probably pretty much agree with those definitions. So the power of making a reasoned choice or decision. So do you think God has made some reasoned choices and decisions? And to what extent has he made reasoned choices and decisions? Has it just been kind of a big picture? You know, the deist says that, well, God created the universe and he made all the laws and then he kind of put it all in motion and he walks away. He's not involved. In fact, a lot of the early uh, fathers of the United States were deists. Okay, is that what scripture has to say? No. Okay. So, there are other people that believe that there is no God, and therefore there, there is no will from God. There are other people that would say, okay, um, you know, God does have a will, but it only has to do with important issues, with spiritual issues. The, the dualism comes into play here. He only cares about your soul. He doesn't really care about your work, whatever you do in the tangible world. See, so you've got various levels of belief about what the will of God might be. So let me just, let me just sh show you this text here. All of you know this. This is what we call the Lord's Prayer, but I've, re I've recast it as the Disciples' Prayer. The reason I've done that is because this prayer was given to the disciples in response to the question, teach us to pray. So this is what Jesus said. If you want to pray, here's a good example of how to pray. Okay? Now, I want you to notice how important the will of God is in this prayer. He starts out, Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. First thing, we are acknowledging God as God. And we're acknowledging with awe and reverence that he is apart from us. Hallowed means set apart. He is set apart. His name is so far beyond us, we can't even fathom what that is. Then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the game here is the rule and reign of God on this planet. We, we know he rules and reigns in heaven, but there is this rebellion going on that started in Genesis chapter 3. And that rebellion is manifesting itself mostly here, although we know it has a spiritual root. And that spiritual root comes from Lucifer, from the devil. Everything has a spiritual root. And when you begin to recognize spiritual roots, you begin to solve problems at the root level, not at the symptom level. So Jesus is telling us right here that this is the way you should be praying. You know, one of the things I try to do when I pray for anyone is I try to pray, you know, alignment with the will of God over that person. 
we had a we do a lot of things in our in our churches that are sometimes kind of goofy. Y'all y'all experience that? Mm-hmm. Well, here's a little deal that happened recently. Um, one of our staff pastors got up and um, he said, "I really feel God calling us call, a call to acceleration." And so he starts talking about acceleration and how God's going to accelerate things and how he instantaneously does things sometimes, which he does. He does do that sometimes. And so um, we have a prayer team. We have actually prayer time in our, in our service. So the prayer team comes up, and they were instructed, pray for acceleration over the people that come up. Well, one of the guys that I work with in our church, he, I'm kind of discipling him, he comes up and he taps me on the shoulder. And I, the, the elders don't generally stand in front. We kind of are there to support them, and we... We, uh, we also wind up praying for people that come up to us individuals. So he came up to me, and um, he tapped me on the shoulder and says, I really wanted to go up there and pray for that acceleration. He said, but I knew that if I had you pray for me, you wouldn't pray for that. Okay? What he was saying was, I believe in a God of process. That if God has you in a circumstance, he has a purpose. And God's will is not that you be delivered from that circumstance. It's that you be grow through that circumstance to wherever it is he wants to take you. And he was wise enough to know that that's the prayer he wanted. He wanted the prayer of alignment with God, not the prayer of relief from circumstances. Most of us, what we want is relief. You know, the pressure's too hot, it's too hard, get me out of here. And what God is into is I want to grow you up. I've got you in the heat to grow you up. So this is, this is what I, when I pray over people, I try to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Alignment with God to me is a priority here. So that was, this is how we should be praying. The will of God over people. If somebody comes up to me and they want me to pray for relief from circumstances, uh, I very politely will pray for alignment. Somebody comes to me and they say, I need a job. I don't pray for jobs. Does that shock you? Let me explain why that, why that is. A job for most people is something they have to do. They have to do it to make money, support their family. And that's how they look at it. So I will very politely say, I will not pray for a job for you, but what I will pray for is your assignment. Because I know when you line up to do the assignment of God in your life, there is provision. Because that's what Matthew 6.33 says. It says, if you seek first the kingdom... And you do it according to God's rules, which is righteousness. Then what does God respond with? Provision. Provision is the fruit of alignment. It's the fruit of the will of God being done in a person's life. We've got to learn to think biblically. We have have marketplace prayer on Friday mornings. Four guys meet to pray over any kind of marketplace issue at all. And we are, we are committed to praying biblical prayers. Okay? We don't pray for money. We pray for alignment. We don't pray for jobs. We pray for assignments. We don't pray for relief from circumstance. We pray for growth through circumstances. Okay? You see how we're praying? We are trying to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're trying to do. And I think that's the way we need to learn to pray. So that is God has a will and he wants us to line up with his will. Now notice what Christ, Christ's prayer in the garden. This is one of my favorite texts because it's, it's a killer text. It's one of these killer texts where it stabbed me in the heart because this is tough. He is about, he's sweating bullets. You ever sweat bullets? Bullets of blood coming out? 
He's getting ready to go and pay the ultimate sacrifice. And by the way, that was called love. God so loved the world that he killed his son. I mean, I just kind of say, oh, what kind of God do we have here? It doesn't fit my pictures. Because we have pictures of God that are not correct. You see, God's into doing great things, good things, through seemingly difficult and even hard things. Going a little further, Jesus fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now that's a hard one for me. I don't know if it's a hard one for you, but it's a hard one for me. Because it requires me to die. And I don't want to die. You ever notice that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to pay the price? Nobody wants to die? You ever notice that? You know, somebody like somebody said one time, you know when you become a Christian, it sounds all glorious and everything until you read the fine print. And the fine print tells you you've got to die. It's a different deal. Well, God has a will. We have a will. God has a will. And we're told, die to your will. Do his will. So the point here is to say, God very definitely has a will, and it involves the details of our life. You notice, this is a specific situation in the life of Jesus. God is into specifics. All right, there are two basic wills of God that I want to share with you today. There's a general will of God and a specific will of God. General will and specific will. The general will of God is something that we are all under. It's the same for all of us. The specific will is unique to you. Isn't that neat that God has a will unique for you? I mean, that's, that's, that's usually a mind blower for most people because most people can't imagine God loving them that much to have a plan, have a will, have a purpose uniquely for them. But we'll show you some scripture here that will challenge, challenge you to think that way. But first, let's look at the general will of God. The first aspect of the general will of God is there is a meta-narrative. Who knows what that is? Who's ever heard of that? Okay. Theologians believe that the scriptures paint a picture of a big story that God is doing. It's an overarching story that the focal point of the story is Christ. And the story is all about, you notice that we have creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Do you notice that? Did you notice in Revelation 21 and 2 you have recreation? Remember that? You all read, your, read that? Mm -hmm. Genesis 3 you have the fall. And the third to the last chapter in Revelation is the eradication of sin. See the symmetry? I mean, God's so cute. Right? It's, just, it's amazing. So what we have here then is this meta-narrative between Genesis and Revelation that has to do with Christ. And the process of also advancing the kingdom of God. And I was reading uh, just the other day in the Gospel of Luke about the, the role of John the Baptist. And I saw something I hadn't seen before. Did you know that the role of John the Baptist was to prepare a people for the Lord? Prepare a people for the Lord. I think that there is a clue there to what this whole existence is. You say, well, gee, Lord, why is it that we have all these thousands of years going on? What, what's the point of all this existence anyway? 
I mean, you're going to eradicate sin anyway. You've got it all figured out. Why don't you just go ahead and turn up the timetables and let's just get it done. Well, there's something going on here about preparing the people. God is preparing us for whatever it is in the next life. You know, we tend to think about the next life in terms of heaven, like, you know, having a hammock in the sky and kind of relaxed and cool and maybe playing golf every day and, you know, just no problems and not to worry about money or, you know, sin or anything. It's just cool, you know? That's kind of what we think. We're playing harps, singing praises, don't we? That's what we think. That's kind of what we think. But if you, if you go and look at some of the parables, like the parable of the minus in Luke 19, uh, and you see this was a parable that was specifically given because the disciples thought Jesus was going to bring the kingdom right then. He said, well, okay, you guys got a wrong impression here. I'm going to give you reality. And he tells them the parable of the minus. And remember when he comes back and, the, and, and he calls them to account, the very first guy comes and says, well, you gave me one, here's ten. Wow, you took a mine and turned it into ten. Well, very good, good and faithful servant. Because you've been faithful and little, guess what? You get to rule what? No, he says something very specific. Ten cities. Ten cities. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I took a little bit of money, and I made it more money, and now I get to rule ten cities? Okay. You get to rule the ten biggest cities in Texas because you were faithful. You say, what? Wait a minute. How does this compute? You see, it doesn't fit our pictures because we have these, these airy-fairy ideas. that we I don't know where we come up with these ideas about what heaven's all about. But it, you start looking at Scripture, we're getting some clues that you know something? Our stewardship, our ability to learn how to steward assets in this creation is important. It sets the stage for what's going to happen in the future. So we've got to learn to pay attention to these things. So the meta-narrative is big. The meta-narrative is the overarching story. The question is, how do I fit in to what God is doing throughout history? What were you doing 100 years ago? Anybody? Well, what was going on 100 years ago? You know? 1909. Okay. What are you going to be doing 100 years from now, assuming Christ doesn't come back? You see, if he didn't come back, there's going to be a 2109. There's going to be people living, and there's going to be the cause of Christ still growing. What role do we play now through our life, however long it may be? What does it play into the meta-narrative? That's a level of thinking we don't do. How many, how many sermons have you heard about this? That's what I thought. You see, we're not thinking biblically about the big picture. So the first thing we've got to start thinking about is the will of God. Notice what he says in Isaiah 46. He says, I am God and there is no other. Let's get this real clear. Okay? You know, Allah is not God. Buddha is not God. There is no other God. I am God. There is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. In other words, I define the start time. I define the end time. Who defines when you would be born? Who defines when you're going to be taken out? He defines the end and he defines the beginning. He is totally in control. From ancient times, what is still to come, I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God will do his will. 
he will accomplish his purpose. Now look how detailed it gets. That sounds very big picture, doesn't it? Okay, well let's look at the next phrase. From the east, I summon a massive flock of birds. Doesn't say that, does it? How about a massive army? You know, trillions of people. No, he says, I summon a bird of prey from a far off land. A man, not men, not an army, not a, a horde. A man to fulfill my purpose. You see, God is, he gets down to the individual level in accomplishing his will. Which is why each one of us counts in the kingdom. Everybody has a place if you're willing to submit to the will of God in your life. Okay, so that's the meta narrative. And Philippians 2, 9 and 11 kind of gives you a hint of this, of what this thing is. Ultimately, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? Jesus is Lord. That's where it's all going. Christ is the focal point. He's the starting point. He's the repository of all wisdom and knowledge. He's the one that gives you the directive in life. He's the one that gives you skill and ability to do whatever it is you're called to do. He's the one that gives you your daily work assignments. He's the one that says you have done it correctly. He's the inspector general. He is everything. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And every knee will, will, will bow and every tongue will confess that in the end. So that's a kind of a big picture of the meta narrative. But do you see it applies to you? If it applies to a bird, it applies to you. Now, the second aspect of general will of God is that every one of us is obligated to operate under a biblical world view. Now, I wish we had time to go into this. If you're interested on my website... There is a 12-week teaching on biblical worldview. It will give you a good dose of what I think the scripture has to say about this. That teaching is available free on my website. Just go out there and jump into it. But biblical worldview is the foundation for any successful life. If you want to live well in God's universe, if you want to have success, you need a biblical worldview. Now let me just show you this text. You all know this text. We call this the what? We call it the Great Commission. Can I tell you, can I say this is the second Great Commission? You know what the Great Commission is? It's Genesis 1.26, to rule God's creation. That's why we're here. See, what we tend to do, tend to think is, gee, this is a miserable place, it's hard, it's difficult. Can I get me out of here as quick as you can? You know, what we want is an exit strategy. And what he's trying to say is, I want you to learn stewardship skills, and I want you to be my emissary wherever I assigned you. Yeah, right. See, so we got we got to get a mindset change here. So I, this, to me, is the second great commission. And the reason that this is a great commission is, I have an assignment from God, but I don't have the power to do it because of sin. Yeah. Those of you that, how many of you hire people? You hire people? Okay, you know the stats on why people get hired and why they get fired. You seen that? Most people get hired because of perceived capability, perceived skills. They get fired most of the time because of character issues. That's well-known research. And yet, it's, I'm just amazed at, at, I work with companies all the time. I'm a, I'm a management consultant, so I'm working with business owners and management teams all the time. And they're, they're just like clueless. They cannot get, get that in their heads. But... It's well established that, that is, that that's reality. Well, why is that? It's because of sin. 
Sin at work in people blocks them from doing what they were created to do. You might see the destiny of God in somebody, but unless they bow the knee to Christ, they can never fully realize that destiny. They'll get just a part of it. You know, I wish we had time to talk about Mickey Mantle. Who knows about Mickey Mantle? Perhaps one of the greatest athletes of all time. He squandered his, his skill with, with immoral living. You know, you know, drinking and chasing women and partying and all that. He never worked out. Never, he never, never developed a skill. And when he, when he was near his death, he acknowledged why he did this. He was operating under a false presupposition. He had seen his, his father and his uncles die an early death because of cancer. So he was angry at God. And he thought God was going to take him early in life. So the way he was going to thumb his nose at God is he was just going to party hardy. He's just going to live the way he wanted to live. He had no idea he would live to be over 60 years old. But God used that in his latter years to bring him to his knees. And he repented. He spent his latter years doing many, many good things. But you see, he squandered incredible ability as a young man. See, that's what we do. When we don't have the character of God in us, we don't have the Holy Spirit changing us, we don't fulfill the destiny. Now, God's a God of redemption. He's always redeeming things. So Mickey Mantle, in the end, did some great things. But he squandered some incredible potential. Well, what this commission is all about is telling us how to release the potential in us. This incredible skill and ability and opportunities that God has in our lives will never be fully released unless we are born again and unless we grow in Christ. Notice what I have underlined. He's telling them, telling his disciples and all followers of Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. This, this has to do with the reality of identifying with the community of Christians. When you are baptized, you now have identified yourself with a different, different community, a different family. You're now part of the community of Christ. And teaching them doctrine. Wait a minute, it doesn't say that. Teaching them theology. No, it doesn't say that. Um, teaching them, I don't like that word. <laughs> to obey everything I have commanded you. Oh man, I'd just rather have a head trip. Why do I have to do it? You see, this thing doesn't say what we think it says. We don't realize this thing is a mandate to discipleship. Now, from what we can tell, the first century church was under deep persecution. And when you became a Christian, it was a death sentence. So what happened is the Christians were trying to figure out how to practice the reality of this truth. So they, they developed a, an early discipleship manual called the Didache. And when you came to know Christ, what happened was you were assigned someone who was going to take you through the Didache, which was training in the teaching of Christ, and that person held you accountable to do it. Can you imagine that? Having that kind of environment in your Christian community? Well, we have a, a new Christian here tonight, so-and-so, and, um, and Fred has been assigned to disciple him, and we're going to be praying for you and walking with you as you grow in Christ. And everybody now, all eyes are on him to see, is he going to do it? Now, in the first century, for what we can tell, that, that introduction didn't happen until the discipler was satisfied 
that the disciple was for real. Think about that. You can say, oh, well, I, yeah, I accepted Christ tonight. Okay, well, really? How do we know that? You know, well, you kind of look a little different, but let's just, let's just test this. So we want you to go into a discipleship relationship with Robert for about six months, and you meet with him, how about every day for six months? Do you know Paul did stuff like that? Check out Acts 19. They met every day for two years. And Paul taught them the kingdom of God. Can you imagine that was the greatest seminary that ever existed? Okay, so anyway, so that's what, that's what they did. So Robert would take this guy through this discipleship process, maybe take six months, maybe takes a year, and once he's satisfied, yes, I think we have the real deal here, then you are invited to participate in the church meetings which are in private, because if they were in public, you were all going to get arrested. So they have to be in private. See, that's the, that's the culture they came up in. We're in a culture today that's totally different. Okay, if you, if you attend a, a traditional church, the doors are wide open and whosoever will may come. Isn't that right? In fact, we, we actually go out and bust them and bring them in. You know, so we have a totally different culture you're in. It, it basically, what you, and we, anybody that says they're a Christian, we immediately assume they are. Isn't that right? So you may, you may if you've hung around me any length of time at all, you will hear me use the term professing Christian. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? I run into a lot of people that say they are Christians. But the only real validation that anybody is a Christian is, are they doing this? Are they obeying everything that Christ commanded? Now, I agree, none of us is perfect at that. But do you see in their life a focused, dedicated, committed effort to doing the will of God in their life? So that's the question. That's the test. So here's the two aspects of the general will of God. Is the meta narrative getting the big picture in mind, how you fit into that, and having a biblical worldview which gives you the values and the principles and the practices in your life that are so Christ-like that now that releases the potential in you. Okay, let's talk about the specific will of God. Now we're getting very individual about you. God has a specific will for you. Now let's look at a very well-known text, Ephesians 2. Verses 1 through 10. Y'all are all familiar with that, right? It's perhaps one of the clearest presentations of the gospel in all of Scripture. If you want a clear presentation, hey, this is your text. It lays it out so beautifully. Now, we're not going to talk about the first uh, seven verses. We're going to jump in here in verse 8. Because the first seven verses lay out the reality, hey, you're dead, you're a sinner, you are under the wrath of God, you're under judgment. I got a question for you guys that hire people. Would you hire somebody that you knew was under judgment? What do you mean under judgment? Would you hire somebody that you knew was under judgment, the judgment of God? Would you do that? That's usually kind of one of those like. What? Well, anytime you hire somebody that does not know Jesus Christ, you're hiring somebody who's under the wrath of God. Ephesians 2, verse 3. Take a look at it. Okay. I just want to, that was free. No charge for that. Okay, verse 8 here. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, we all know that. You've been around Christianity in length of time. That is the essence of the gospel right there. It's the free gift of salvation through the sacrificial work of Christ. Why are you saved? The next verse tells you. For... 
Here's the reason. God wants to populate heaven. Doesn't say that, does it? Uh, God just loves you. That doesn't really say that. God wants to make your life easy. God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and wise. Well, I mean, those are things that are true, but that's really not what he's after here. What he's after is this. A reality of the intentional, specific will of God in your life. So, we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You say, okay, all right, all right let me get my arms around that deal. What's he saying here? What's good works? Now remember, we've defined what good is. Good is anything in alignment with God. The word work there, we tend to kind of think, we immediately kind of dualistically say, well, he's talking about preaching, right? Evangelism, passing out tracts, uh, mission trips, right? Uh, maybe being a Bible teacher. That's what, that's, immediately we go to that. That's not what the word means. It's the Greek word ergon. That Greek word ergon refers to all kinds of work. There's no limit on the kinds of work. And let me just give you an illustration of where that word is also used. In John 17, verse 4, Jesus gives us the definition of success. Would you like to know that? Jesus' definition of success? That would be good to know, wouldn't it? Well, here it is. His definition of success. He said, Father, I have brought you glory on earth... By completing the work you gave me to do. And that word work is ergon. By completing the ergon you gave me to do. You say, whoa, that was success? Success is about doing the will of God? Wait a minute. I object to that. Um, Is Bill Gates a success? Is he? He's got a bunch of money. You know? Isn't that, isn't that success, having a bunch of money? Now, when we talk about somebody being successful, don't we mean they have a bunch of money? Now, come on, be honest. That's what we mean. Uh, we, got, we have one objector here. Well, most people think that. Okay. The vast majority of people out there that I run into, immediately, they default to money. I was speaking to a group not too long ago and I threw out the Bill Gates question and everybody, oh yeah, Bill Gates is a success. I said, well, what about Jesus? He died broke. And then they said, oh, well, that's different. I said, why is that different? Why does Bill Gates have a different definition from Jesus? Where would that come from? You see, we, this is the dualism playing in. Well, you know, he was a spiritual man and Bill Gates is a carnal man or different definitions. No, no. We're all human beings. We all have the same definition. If Jesus' definition of success was obedience to the Father, that's our definition of success. So, Jesus did the works, the ergon he was assigned to do. Now, what what was his ergon? Well, he started out as a young boy, learning and growing. Remember what he did at age 12 when they went to Jerusalem and how he stayed behind while the family took off? I guess back then they didn't quite monitor their children as, as tightly as we do today. And we have hovering parents today, you know. But back then, they just assumed he was among the, the gaggle that was going. And they couldn't find him after a few days. So they go back and spent three days trying to find him. Then they find him. Well, he's there. He's getting a theological education at 12. Well, undoubtedly, at, at that same time, he started his apprenticeship as a carpenter. 
And he spent 18 years, as far as we can tell, as a carpenter. Well, that was part of his air gun. That's one of the reasons those 39 parables, half of them talk about financial matters and business matters. He spent a lot of time in in a carpentry shop. And then he goes into his itinerant preaching ministry. All of this was his air gun. And he says, Father, I have completed all of your assignments. I've done what you put me here to do. Now it's time for you to glorify me. Which means it's time for his transition. You see, that's... Is that different to you? Does it challenge your thinking? You know, most of us, life is about being comfortable and being healthy and having fun. That's, from, that's how most people want to live life. Most professing Christians just want a comfortable life. We don't think in terms of getting up every day and asking the Lord, what is my assignment today? You know, for the last decade or so, I have tried to make it a point to get up in the morning and say, I'm reporting for duty. I'm reporting for duty. Whatever it is you want me to do, I'm here to the best of my ability to do it. Give me grace to do it. Okay? And where I don't believe, help my unbelief. You know, I think that's the kind of perspective we've got to start our day with. Well, that's, this is because God has a specific will. He has a will for you and a will for me, and they're probably different. You have a different assignment. You know, none of you are related to me, and I'm not related to you, at least in the immediate family. Ultimately, back in Adam we are, but in our immediate families. My, my parents are different from your parents. My date of birth is probably different from your date of birth. Likewise, my date of death. My skills and abilities are different from your skills and abilities. My opportunities are different from yours. All of these things are different, but they're all God-ordained because he has put everything strategically in place for you to do the works that he prepared in advance for you to do. And the salvation you have in Christ will release you now to do those works. So that's what Ephesians 2, 8, and 10 is all about. Now, notice these texts here that just kind of confirm this reality. Psalm 57, I cry out to the God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. There is a specific purpose for the psalmist. Psalm 138.8 says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. You see, there's a very clear sense in Scripture of individual, specific destiny and purpose. And so the specific will of God for you and for me is to discover the air gun that we've specifically been assigned to do and then to do it to the glory of God. Why does he want you to prosper? So you can do his will. Your resources, your time, talent, and treasure are given to you to do the will of God. It's not primarily for your personal comfort or your personal discretion or to build that big house. It's to do the will of God. What would happen if all of a sudden God dropped $100 million in your bank account? Just dropped it in your bank account. What would you do? I shared this at a, a church a lot too long ago, and immediately a, a woman yells out, Go to Neiman's! So, well, that's, yeah, I understand that. But you see, that's how we generally think about money first. We think about me. I think the more proper response, if God were to drop $100 million in our lap, is for us to drop to our knees and ask, Lord, what is this provision for? Why have you given me the stewardship? You understand it's not yours? Why have you given this resource for me to steward? What do you want done with this resource? 
Does that sound a little different from your, maybe run down your list? There's nothing wrong with planning. I totally agree with planning. Okay? The point is the attitude. It's the hard attitude. Most people think when they get a dollar, it's theirs. And they'll tip God. <laughs> You've got a tip, you know, for thank you for the money. The re- you got your tip, the rest of it's mine. It's all his. Nothing I have is mine. I'm a steward of whatever it is that God's given me to steward. My time, talent, and treasure. So it's, a, it's, it's all, again, an attitude of how I view life. It's a world view through which I live my life. And so that's, we've all got to gain a biblical perspective of life. And getting back to this, it, it involves understanding that God has a specific purpose for you. Now, God has a specific purpose beyond you. He has a specific purpose for organizations. Notice this text in James 4. How many of you have done a business plan before? Anybody done a business plan? Several of you have done a business plan before. Okay, you'll, you'll recognize this. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Well, what does that sound like to you? That's a business plan, isn't it? I've done scores of business plans in my career, and every one of them is the same way. We come up with a strategy, we're going to go do this, this, and this, and we're always going to make a bunch of money. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen any of them work anywhere close to what the plan was. But we had this plan to make a bunch of money. Okay, now notice what James says. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Got that right. I don't have a clue what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That's right. hundred years ago, I wasn't here. hundred years from now, probably not going to be here. So... And who knows how long this earth has been around and how long it's going to continue. If a thousand years is but a day to the Lord, how many days is he going to go on? Okay, I don't know. The reality is that we are very limited in what we see and what we know. And we are just a mist that appears for here. So in light of the incredible significance of God and His plan and purpose and our little role, our bit part to play in the cosmic play that He has going on, this is how we should approach business. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the will, the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. In other words, every business plan should ultimately be, ultimately be about discerning the will of God. Oh my goodness. I thought it was about making money. Taking advantage of opportunities, you know, killing competition, you know, being being the best. You see, that's the world's way of looking at it. We've got to start thinking biblically. You know, if I don't discern the will of God for my business, I will not be a success. Because success is obedience. If I don't line up with his will, I'm not obedient and I'm not a success. And it doesn't matter how much money I might make. My dad passed a little over a year ago. Very hard experience. But it was a very eye-opening experience. God showed me many lessons about, about what life was about. And one of the lessons that was crystal clear to me was when we went to take his body to the cemetery and bury it, his assets didn't go with him. He was alone in that casket put into the ground. You see, life is short. It is very short. And 
if, if there's anything that's become really clear to me as I'm growing older, as I'm experiencing life, is there's only one relevant question for me as I approach the end of my life, whenever that is, and that is, have I done the will of God? That is the only relevant question. That just is so sober, sobering sometimes I just, I get speechless. And I say, Lord, give me the grace to discern your will. And for me, and for I think most of you, we will discern the will of God and execute our purpose in the context of an organization. You know, the very first time in Scripture it says that something is not good, that is something is not in alignment with God, is in Genesis chapter 2. Anybody remember that text? right. It is not good for man to be alone. The first time, you know, that creates all kinds of theological questions for me. I'm saying, God, did you make something defective in your creation? I mean, what happened here? You know, what's going on here? Well, I have to, can't, I can't answer all those questions, but what I can get clear on is it's not, does not line up with God for man to be alone. Now, for those of you that, that grew up in the 50s, there was a TV character by the name of the Lone Ranger. Remember that guy? Look at the way the Lone Ranger functioned. He was not part of a community. He, he was not accountable to anybody. He didn't connect with anybody. He wasn't submitted to anybody. He was out there just doing his thing. Now, he was doing a lot of good things, as we would call them good. And, and Tondo was his sidekick, but Tondo didn't have a say. You know, Tondo was just, you know, he was behind him, behind him to the right, okay? You know, you, you don't lead, I lead, and I tell you what to do. But see, we, we as children were led to believe that that's a role model. Now, whether we you know, had parents telling us that or not, we just, that's just what we assumed. We grew up thinking that we needed to be self-made people. Pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We need to be like the Lone Ranger showing up, you know, you know doing good, you know, destroying evil, and you know, then running off before anybody could thank us and leaving our silver bullets behind as our trademark. I mean, the unreality there is just unbelievable. But we bought into that. And we bought into a lie. Because Scripture says it is not good that man be alone. And the reality is I will never fulfill my destiny to do the work that God's put me here to do by myself. And I don't think you will either. Which is why we need organizations. We need organizations where we can go and we can fit in and do what we're created to do. At the same time, we facilitate that organization doing what it's supposed to do in the meta-narrative that God has got going on. And when you stop and look at this, I mean, God's system is wonderful. It's beautiful. Everything works so nicely together. We just got to decide to die to self and line up with the will of God. And that's, that's when it all begins to flow. The yoke becomes easy and the burden becomes light. So God has a specific will for us as individuals and specific wills for organizations, and they are congruent. They work together. Now, real quickly here, we're running out of time here. Let's talk about parenting. Um, what I run into mostly is parents that don't have a clue about what I've just been talking about. They, they've never thought at that level, and so when they're raising children... They're pretty much just letting the children do whatever 
and they're not really looking for the destiny and purpose of God in children. We need to start thinking at this level and asking ourselves, whenever the child is born, it is no accident. God has ordained that child and has a plan and purpose for that child. The question is, why is that child here? And my job as a parent is first and foremost to discern the will of God for that child and then train that child up to do the will of God. So to do that, I need to teach them the meta-narrative. They need to understand the reality that Christ is the focal point of everything. He is the source. He is the purpose. He is the sustainer. He is the ultimate end. Look at this text in Colossians. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created. He's the source. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him, he's the means, and for him, he's the end. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the glue. He is the sustainer of the universe. Any questions? I mean, it's just, this is so blatantly clear. He is the all in all. He is the reason, the source, the means, the objective. He's everything. So that's the core, the core of the meta narrative. It is about Christ. It's all about about and everything in the Old Testament is looking forward to Christ. The Gospels delineate his life here, and everything then from Acts on is looking back to Christ. And of course, ultimately in Revelation, he's returning. And our life fits into this grand meta narrative that the Bible has. Here And we've got to begin to explore, how does this all fit together? We need to teach our children the general will of God, and that is we have to teach them a biblical worldview. Children left to themselves will not conclude a biblical worldview. We have to train them. We have to prepare them. We have to put our values into them, our worldview into them, so they will know how to live and finally, we have to teach them the specific will of God. We have to begin to point out to them what we see early in life and begin to guide them into what God has called them to. I love it. One of my, one of my clients, uh, has been. I've got a number of seminars, and he went to the one on called Strategic Life Alignment, which is about personal destiny. How do you find what you're called to do? There's some biblical principles that, that play in here. One of them is the C4 principle. And so this client went through that, and he really was blessed. In fact, he's been through the seminar several times. And um, he was telling me, I was asking him a few years later, when he was sharing with me how much the seminar had, help, had helped him get on course and find the call of God in his life. And then he said, said, you know, but there's something that's even more important than all that, something that I did not even know would happen. I never expected to happen. And this seminar gave me a new view of parenting. It changed the way I saw my children. He said, I began to look at my children and ask the question, what is it that God wants to do with my son Andrew? Why is Andrew here? Why am I his father? What is it that God wants to accomplish? And how do I begin to prepare Andrew to do it? He said, that has totally changed the way I parent. I said, thank you, Lord. If we begin to parent with that kind of intent, and focus about discerning the will of God, what kind of generation of children do you think we could produce? It could be incredible. Did you know that, that Hitler, it took him 10 years to indoctrinate the children of Germany with his worldview? 10 years. 
That's all it took. You know, we think, well, gee, man, this is a monumental task, you know, changing the worldview of kids. It's horribly difficult. No, it's not horribly difficult. We've just got to decide to do it and get committed to learning it deeply enough ourselves, walking in it deeply enough ourselves, so we can begin to transfer it to our children. I mean, you all know that you can't take somebody someplace you're not going. Leadership is about leading people where you're going. So if you're not on the journey of discovering the will of God in your life, you're not going to lead anybody on that journey. Okay, the fruit. There's fruit to all this. Let me give you three quick, quick elements here and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Three things. Number one, when you line up with the will of God and you, uh, you decide to obey the will of God, you are validating your identity as a member of the Christian community. Look at what Jesus said about his brothers and sisters in Mark 3. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister. You see, that's the real mark. It's not, it's not so much that you say you're a Christian. It's are you looking like Christ? Are you following Christ? Are you obeying Christ? That's the real mark. So that identifies you with the people of God. Secondly, this is a startling one here. When we line up with the will of God, we open the ears of God. Look at this text, 1 John 5.14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. You know, in Proverbs it talks about how people that turn a deaf ear to God by ignoring the law, God turns a deaf ear to them. Ooh, that's scary. My goodness. How many people do we know that are ignoring the Word of God, ignoring truth in the Bible, that they know they're turning a deaf ear to it? Well, that's blocking their prayer life. So you want to release your prayer life? How many times have you felt like you're praying it's just going to the ceiling and bouncing back? Mm, 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 mm. Not going anywhere? Well, th- you need to start looking in here. Where am I out of line? Because if I start lining up with the will of God, that releases now the communion with the Father. So now we have a conversation and we have a Father who's listening. The third thing is it releases revelation. And notice this. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who, who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. You see that? Obedience precedes revelation. Obedience precedes revelation. Did you know that obedience precedes guidance? Proverbs chapter 3. Well here, obedience precedes revelation. How many of you know John 8, 31 and 32? You don't know that text? You, don't, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free? That's John 8, 32. You know what John 8, 31 says? Yeah, most people don't, because they focus on what they like. Read the, whole, read the whole context. Who's he talking to? He says, to the Jews, who were his disciples, who were obeying his commandments. He said, if you do what I command you, then you will be my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You hear that? That obedience precedes the freedom. 
Obedience precedes revelation. So as we begin to line up with the will of God, we release revelation in our lives. Which that is the way we know what to do, is through revelation. How do you know the will of God for your life? He has to reveal it to you through scripture, through an unction of the Holy Spirit, through people conversing with you, that you're sensing that God is speaking to you through them. Men, how many of you figured out that God will speak to you through your wife? Man, I paid a lot of money to learn that lesson. Man, I cannot tell you how much money I paid to learn that lesson. You know, and sometimes it just irritates me that God chooses to do that. Sometimes I say, Lord, why don't you just tell me? Why do you have to tell her and have her tell me? You know, I, I don't like this system. We've got to decide, hey, it's his system. He's the one that defines the rules, and we just line up with his rules. So, obedience to God releases revelation. Okay, summer here. Work is not a necessary evil, it's divinely ordained, and God has a will for the workplace. The workplace is more than just a place to evangelize and be ethical. It is a place to serve and minister through obedience to the general and specific will of God. A major responsibility for parents is to train, is training children in both the general and specific will of God. And obedience to the will of God releases the responsiveness in God and increased revelation in us. So may that be your portion to learn to walk in the will of God, generally and specifically in Jesus' name.